Hello, everyone. Welcome aboard the Disneyland Railroad. We are now beginning a grand circle tour around the Magic Kingdom. Greetings, folks, and welcome aboard the Disneyland Hotel Tram. Come on, kids. There's Frontierland. Let's hop over and see what's doing. I see Walt over there, too. This is the panorama of Frontierland, a composite of the life and times of a hundred years ago, a return to the heritage of the Old West. And now, as we approach the station, please check for all your personal belongings and remain seated until the train comes to a complete stop. Thank you for joining us on the Walt Disney World monorail, and I hope you have a pleasant stay in the Magic Kingdom. W Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 511, and I'm here once again not only to help you have the best experiences when you go to the parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic, not just with the podcast, but with my videos, blog, live broadcasts on Facebook every Wednesday night, my books, audio tours, special events, meets of the month, every month in Walt Disney World and more. You can find everything over at www.radio.com and I invite you to go to www.radio.com slash box people to be part of our conversation and community over on Facebook. So this week, I invite you to meet the man who went from a Disneyland day one guest to a Disneyland day two cast member. A boy who went from influencing Walt to a man who managed the monorail in Walt Disney World and helped open Disneyland Paris. His name is Tom Nabby, and his journey from a boy with a dream to Disney legend is both fascinating and inspiring. Join me as I sit down with Tom to talk about his unique career path from stories of working with Walt to his window on Main Street USA and more. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a special Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show as I'll have more information about upcoming WW Radio events, meets of the month, in Walt Disney World, and on the road, as well as your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Disney's Polynesian Village Resort, I am reminded of a quote from a very, very wise man who talked about how you can design and create the most magical place on earth, but it really does take people to make those dreams a reality. I believe that wholeheartedly, and I am so incredibly honored and thrilled to be sitting with someone who I have known for years and whose story I'm excited to share with you in his own words. He is former Disneyland and Walt Disney World cast member, 
More importantly, he is a Disney legend. He is Mr. Tom Nabby. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, well, thank you very much, Lou. Looking forward to it. We've been planning this for almost four years, I think, of getting together after uh, a couple of the events that we've had. And he said, oh, you need to get together so I can do an interview. And I think we played tag on several occasions. Uh, I, I, I guess we have to go back and start a little bit at, at, at the beginning. I was born in Santa Barbara, uh, California, and uh, uh, we lived there for a while. And, and uh, my mother uh, uh, married a gentleman uh, by the name of Eddie Mora. And, and in turn, we moved from Santa Barbara to Anaheim uh, just in the, the late 40s uh, and uh, 50 time frame. Uh, I was uh, just starting elementary school, and uh, I had uh, uh, dreams of grandeur of, of, of having a paper route, and I found uh, a way that I could uh, ride the bus up to the Coliseum. Uh, in L.A. for the football season, uh, sell newspapers, and I was able to earn enough money selling newspapers at the Coliseum to buy a bicycle. And once I bought a bicycle, then I could have a, a paper route, and so I ended up getting a paper route there in L.A. And <clears throat> I grew up in Florence, uh, Los Angeles, which is right downtown Slauson and Alameda area, uh, if some people know, just right around the, the block from Washington. So right in that area. Uh, and <clears throat> during this time frame, uh, uh, in, it was when Disneyland uh, came on uh, television on Wednesday evenings. And, uh, you know, television was relatively a new new thing. You know, had a little black and white TV with the, with the, with the, with the big uh, uh, fish tank in front of it to magnify it and that. But uh, my, <clears throat> my mother was a little bit of a, a, a starlet wannabe, and she used to go up to all the premiere openings up in Hollywood. And she's that lady that you see standing, standing behind the barricades with the autograph book looking for everybody get autographs and and uh, uh, she used to take us to any anything that she could get into uh, TV new TV shows uh, premiere openings anything along that line uh, and uh, she got very enamored with with Walt and Walt's discussion of Disneyland and uh, where it was being built in Anaheim and she sort of looked at it and my uh, my stepfather was a uh, was a, uh, a GI and and uh, eligible to get a, a GI uh, uh, home loan and so she went down to Anaheim and checked it out and found a place in in Anaheim about seven tenths of a mile from Disneyland uh, and she could uh, uh, qualify to buy the house on the GI bill so in December of 1954, we relocated from Anaheim, uh, uh, from L.A. to Anaheim. Uh, and when I got to Anaheim, the, <clears throat> the problem that I found is Anaheim was a very rural community uh, during this time frame, and I couldn't get a newspaper route. Okay. Um, I had my bicycle, but I couldn't get a newspaper route. Uh, you had to have a driver's license, and I was only 12 years old, so I wasn't able to drive a car. But I could get a Sunday paper route. And so I developed a, a route in the neighborhood. I had about 20 to 25 people that I'd deliver the Sunday uh, Herald Examiner to. Uh, and I had a deal with the uh, uh, manager 
uh, newspaper manager that any papers that he had left over he couldn't drop off. And what I did is, is I tried to get over to Disneyland, and they were working three shifts, the construction people. Uh, and I'd get over there early on Sunday morning and sell to the third ship uh, of people that were going home Sunday papers. Uh, and uh, I met a, a gentleman by the name of Ray Ahmet. Joe and Ray Ahmet, uh, Ahmet uh, uh, had uh, the, the concession on Main Street called Castle News. Uh, and they also were going to do a publication called the Disneyland News, which was going to be a monthly newspaper. It told the history of Disneyland, uh, told a little bit of upcoming events and what was going on in that month. And all the lessees uh, that uh, uh, had businesses in Disneyland would advertise in this paper. When Disneyland first opened up, there was only about 600 people that actually worked for Walt. There's the people in the administration, the people that in, in the rides and attractions area, and, uh, the people in maintenance, uh, and, but all the food locations and all the merchandise locations and everything were run by these lessees. And uh, uh, Joe's had the, had the concession. Uh, he also had uh, wheelchair and stroller rentals to go along with that. And it was one of those where, where you could get your, your name uh, put in the headline of the paper, okay, or they did wanted posters and that type of thing. So he had a, had a very lucrative business going at that time for him. But he would, uh, he would show up every morning. Uh, after the park opened, I'm get getting a little, little ahead of it. Watch Disneyland grow out of out of nowhere. Uh, when, when we moved to Anaheim, uh, they were just starting to build the Santa Ana Freeway, still with Manchester Boulevard, and they had just finished building the overpass for Harbor Boulevard over the Santa Ana Freeway, and they were working on the overpass for Ball Road. It went over the Santa Ana Freeway. So you could get up on the top of the overpass and actually look down into the construction site at Disneyland. And you're looking in on the on the backside of Tomorrowland. You see some of Fantasyland. And you could see the back of the buildings on Main Street. And you could see the train station and the castle. <clears throat> so you literally watched Disneyland being built, you know, from the outside in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, especially every Sunday morning when I'm riding up there to stop on the top and see it. And then uh, as, as it progressed, then they built the berm, and that restricted a little bit of the view. And then they landscaped the berm, and that blocked a little bit more of that view. But I was able to watch it. I, I, I remember myself and a couple other guys uh, chasing the TWA rocket down Harbor <laughs> Boulevard. It was on a flatbed truck. And we were sure. We chased it all the way to the harbor gate, and then uh, uh, it went inside the park. And so we rode back up to the top of the overpass because we were sure they were going to stand that <laughs> rocket right up. Well, it took about a week, week and a half before they stood up the rocket uh, on, in, in Tomorrowland. So <clears throat> once, the, once the park uh, uh, opened up, uh, Ray, Ray told me, he says, you know, come over every morning. And uh, I'll be out in front of the gate. And if you sell 100 newspapers outside the gate, then you can sell papers, continue to sell papers through the day. Just come to the office and pick them up. Okay, so that was a pretty good deal. So on July 17th, uh, guess where we were? 
we were at Disneyland and my mother had her autograph book and that was a press opening so all those celebrities were there and she was getting those autographs I was sort of down around the corner staring through the fence at the Autopia because I wanted to drive them Autopia cars now I realize I'm 12 okay so I really wanted to drive those Autopia cars and back during this time frame uh, Highway Patrol was a very popular TV show and they had six cars on the Autopia were done in black and white and looked like the highway patrol and they had flashing red lights and a siren and they didn't have any governor on them and I'll I'll talk about that a little bit later here so I ran over there uh, uh, well what what happened is Danny Thomas was coming out my mother asked Danny Thomas for an autograph and he very cordially gave her an autograph and he sort of leaned forward and he says "Have, have you been in the park and my mother says oh no we weren't invited he says well I got a couple extra tickets Okay, and so he gave my mother two tickets, and sure enough, boy, she come found me, and we went into the park as guests of Danny Thomas on the press opening of, of, of Disneyland. Now I have I have my ticket still, and if you look at the ticket, there's no serial number on the ticket. So if anybody ever asks you, Tom Navi has ticket number one to the press opening of, of, of Disneyland. Now they were sort of broke down in in time frames. My tickets say five. 5.30 p.m., I think, on them, and the ones in the archives say 2.30 okay. p.m. So there were sort of just stagger people coming in. <clears throat> uh, and uh, you can sort of go back and say if they didn't number the tickets, they probably didn't know how many tickets they have. That gets back to that, that you know, uh, the Black Sunday uh, uh, right. analogy of working at Disneyland. So we got inside, <clears throat> and I, I remember we did ride the carousel. Uh, and I know we went to to uh, Carnation Gardens, and we got a we got a soda Carnation Gardens, uh, not Carnation Gardens, but Carnation on Main Street. <clears throat> but I think that's the dirtiest or trashiest. I think it'd be a better word. The trashiest I've ever seen a Disney park in my 50-year career. And I think Walt saw the same thing. Because from that point forward, cleanliness was right on top of the list. And that's something he preached to everybody. And, and uh, if, if you ever walked the park with Walt, you know, he'd been over and he was picking up trash as he went through. And uh, that's something you learn. My wife threatened to divorce me one time because I was picking up trash in the Florida mall. But you know, it's just one of those things that you can get conditioned on. My wife says I pick up more garbage at Disney World than I do at my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny how you get conditioned on those things. So on the 18th, my my neighbor across the street, Doug Harmon, and I, we, we went over and stood in line and bought tickets to go in the park. Cost us 50 cents. Okay, that was a child's admission at that time frame. The next day, on the 19th of July, I went to work as a newsie. Okay, so I met I met uh, Ray Ahmed out, out in front of the gate and got my 100 papers, uh, sold those. That, that was a slam dunk. All those people standing in line waiting to buy tickets, and they want need to. And people wrote, uh, read newspapers back at that time for <clears throat> So I'd sell those hundred papers, and then I was able uh, to get inside the park. Well, those of us that sold all our papers out early, we'd get inside the park and we'd run over to Tomorrowland. Because what they needed was to get all the cars driven around and lined up for when the guests would come in on the Utopia. 
Okay, so we'd all run over there to drive the cars around to get them lined up, and every once in a while you get to drive one of them police cars. So that was that was sort of neat. You had dreams coming true literally on day one, like yeah. you were in Disneyland working at Disneyland, and you got to drive the car that you wanted to, that you were looking at forty eight hours earlier through the fence. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, it, it was the end of the first summer. Um, and, and, and I don't remember who, but somebody mentioned to me that Walt uh, was going to build Tom Sawyer's Island on the rivers of America. Uh, and that you look just like Tom Sawyer and you should ask Walt for a job. Now, had anybody told you that before, that you look like Tom Sawyer, or was only because this was, was going to be coming to the park? No, well, I, uh, my, uh, my mother would, you know... <laughs> The starlet wannabe would dress me up in a costume anyway, so so I was I had cut off Levi's and a straw because my complexion I had a straw hat and and uh, she put suspenders and I had a, a blue and white checkered shirt and and that was the costume that I wore to to sell newspapers. Okay, <clears throat> and people would say, "Oh, you look like Huck Finn or you look like Tom Sawyer," uh, that type of thing. So it wasn't unusual for this this person to tell me that you you know you look like Tom Sawyer and say ask Walt for a job and uh, so uh, Walt was in the park quite frequently back during that time frame I think everybody where you know he had the apartment above the the fire station he'd drive down on Friday evenings uh, from the studio and spend you know uh, Friday evening Saturday Sunday morning then he'd drive back up uh, to the studio in there so so it was pretty uh, available and uh, Walt used to walk around the park quite a bit <clears throat> and he didn't look anything like the Walt Disney that you saw on TV. You know, he usually had a couple days growth of beard. Uh, he had a, a white Panama hat and, and, a, and a pair of gray trousers and a, and a blue jacket. And he sort of walked around. So if you didn't really know it was Walt Disney, you wouldn't recognize Walt Disney. But, <clears throat> but I in turn, I recognized Walt. And uh, I approached him and introduced myself and told him I had heard he was going to build Tom Sawyer, and I looked just like Tom Sawyer, and he should hire me. Well, he didn't, because uh, uh, if 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 he if he had said no, uh, we wouldn't be here talking. But what he said is, I'll think about it. And I and you know I sort of re- reflect a little bit back on that. Uh, and and sort of realized that he may not have thought he was going to have a Tom Sawyer. He was going to build Tom Sawyer's Island, but sort of that the guests that went there were going to be Tom Sawyer, sort of like the people that went on on Snow White, okay, that you were actually Snow White. You didn't see Snow White in the the attraction. So so I think I convinced him into hiring a Tom Sawyer. So, So he said he'd think about it. Uh, and so for almost for the next year, anytime I could find Walt, uh, and I asked him if he was still thinking about hiring me as Tom Sawyer, I remember one conversation that we had that he told me that he could, uh, he could probably put a, was it a dummy or mannequin? I think it was a mannequin over on the island that wouldn't be leaving every five minutes for a hamburger, a hot dog, or a Coke, uh, that type of thing. So I, I want to stop you for a second because I think there's something really interesting and, and profound about what you said was, you know, on, on day one you approached Walt, and throughout the year you approached Walt. I think the fact that not only was he present, but that he was approachable and that you as a young boy didn't look at him as somebody who was on TV that, that you felt comfortable enough to approach him, I think says a lot not only about you, but I think about Walt himself in that he allowed himself to 
not be removed from the cast members, but to be accessible. Well, but you look at this whole time frame. Yeah, yeah, you know, Walt had a lot of uh, child actors and actresses. The Mickey Mouse Club was very strong. He had two two daughters. Okay, and so he was fairly comfortable talking with kids. The other thing is, is it, 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 he'd listen to you. Okay, he wouldn't cut you off. He wouldn't boo-boo you, shoo you away, or what. He'd listen to what you had to say, and then he'd address what what, what you said. And that's that's like I say when I asked him to hire me, Tom Sawyer. He said, "No, I you know, but I'll think about it." You know, it's, it's it's not one of those. And so, was that something that was in, like you woke up in the morning and like today I'm going to find Walt and I'm going to ask him to hire me, or was that something that just sort of came to you on the spot? Um, I don't remember waking up with it and and having it, it strike me as as a as the uh, something that I needed to do that day. I, it just materialized. Uh, I, I was in the park and what was in the park and and uh, I I pretty much had a goal. Uh, I, I accomplished one of those just recently uh, when I was made a Disney legend. Okay, uh, that's the same time that Peter Jennings passed away, and Bob Iger. Uh, went to Peter Jennings' funeral, and Marty Scalar hosted the Legends program. Uh, and so I didn't get a photo op with him. Uh, but I went on my bucket list, and it took me 12 years. But this last D23 at Disneyland, I got my photo op with Bob Iger. Okay, and we were walking walking up to 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 the Legends luncheon, and I saw Bob, and I said, Bob, you know, I didn't get my picture with you back when I was made a legend. Would you pose with me now? He said, Absolutely. And so I ended up getting. So I'm sort of tenacious along that line. I've been that way all my life, and and. Uh, uh, you know, maybe if it isn't a, a good thing this week, in two weeks from now, it's it's a good thing. So you always keep those things in the back of your mind, so you can then turn uh, inject those. And while I think we talked uh, over lunch about a couple of those things that you know we did that back in the fifties or whenever. So you you go to Walt and you sort of plant this seed in his head that he it wasn't an idea that he had. You know, you really came up with the concept. How does it go from seeing him in the park and planning that idea one day to, you know, him? How does it go to you actually becoming? Well, I was in the Penny Arcade. I remember this vividly, spending my hard-earned paper money playing the baseball machine in the Penny Arcade because I absolutely love that baseball machine. And a gentleman by the name of Dick Nunes came up and tapped me on the shoulder. And uh, Dick at that time frame was the supervisor of Frontierland. And Dick said, and I, I know you know Dick, but but uh, you know when Dick says, come with me, you, you don't argue with Dick, you go with Dick. So Dick says, come with me. Tom, and so I went with Dick, and and you're probably not thinking this is something good at this point when Dick Nutter says no, he used to throw me out of the park. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he used to accuse me of sneaking in. I didn't sneak in, but I got in there illegally. But but uh, in turn, so I'm I'm walking with Dick, and we were going over to Frontierland, and and this is when the chicken plantation was still there in the Indian village. He walked over this little bridge, and the Frontierland train station was there, chicken plantation. And, and, and the Indian village was all compacted uh, back in that area. And uh, uh, Walt and Morgan Evans, Bill Evans, the landscape architect for Disneyland and Walt Disney World, were coming off the island on a raft. And uh, uh, Walt said, you know, 
when, when he got to the dock and, and stopped, he says, you still want to be Tom Sawyer? And I said, absolutely, Mr. Denny, I do. And he says, well, super, you need to get a work permit and a Social Security card. And okay. And he says, once you do that, I'll put you to work as Tom Sawyer. So getting the Social Security card wasn't any problem. I just went to the office in Santa Ana and filled out the form and got the Social Security card. Okay, uh, now the work permit was a little bit more of a challenge. I had to go to school and I had to get a form. And then I had to take that form to the employment office. And then the employment office had to fill out the form and answer all the questions. And then I had to return that form back to school. And then in turn, they would issue me a work permit. Okay, so uh, in turn, I got my form, and I went, and, and the employment office for Disneyland was in an old house on West Street, just opposite of, of the Disneyland Hotel, and uh, that was the employment office, and I, I went inside, and lady there, and, and, I, and I told her my story, that, you know, that Walt had hired me to be Tom Turner, and she gave me one of these <laughs> nods, oh yeah, okay, and asked me to have a seat, and this side of the story I hear from Dick is that... Uh, but uh, she went and told Chuck Whalen, who is the manager of employment, that, uh, you know, I have this kid out here and that Dick Nunes knows all about it. And so Chuck picked up the phone and called Dick and said, Dick, I got this kid over here that says that Walt hired him to be Tom Sir. And Dick said, yeah, I took a little bit of a deep breath and told Chuck. I says, Chuck, you know, Walt did hire him. Let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> and at that point, all my paperwork got filled out, <laughs> and I went to work as Tom Sawyer. Uh, <clears throat> now, what did Tom Sawyer do? Okay, well, first of all, they assigned me to entertainment to work for Tommy Walker, who was the director of entertainment back at that time. That only lasted about two weeks because they didn't know what the hell to do with me. So they gave me back to the uh, the rides and attractions side, back to Dick Nunes. So under him, one of the conditions of employment was I had to bring in my report card. And if I didn't maintain a C average, I was no longer employed. And uh, uh, I I know uh, uh, Dick reviewed my... I think Walt assigned Dick to to review my report card. But uh, uh, so uh, in turn, uh, you know, I posed for a lot of pictures. We had uh, stocked the rivers of America with bluegill and and catfish and and, uh, sun perch and had the area. There was two piers right across from the landing for the Mark Twain. And they had that area uh, uh, netted off, and that's where the fish were stocked in that area. Because people could, you could actually fish at that point. It was, it was, it was, and it wasn't catch and release, right? Oh, no. At this point, it was catch and clean. <laughs> and, 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 and part of Tom Sawyer's job was to clean the fish if the guests wanted it clean. And I had some plastic bags, and in turn, I cleaned the fish. Well, <clears throat> that didn't last very long either. <laughs> Uh, uh, maybe, maybe two months if it lasted that long uh, from June, July. Uh, by August, uh, old smelly fish had yeah. showed up in places where you didn't <laughs> want old smelly fish. So we went from a catch and clean to a catch and release. <laughs> and I went through and debarbed all the all the hooks. But there was two fishing piers. I'd have 25 fishing poles on each of the piers. Had uh, worms for bait. Had little cans nailed up around the the railing, and would put uh, um, uh, uh, topsoil in the in the cans, and I'd put the, the the worms actually came packaged in smart pills, rabbit poop. 
Right. Yeah. So, so you had to take them from there and put them into to the. Uh, so you were doing a little bit of, of procurement as well as sort of you know guest. Because so really, what was your what was your title? I mean, did you have a? I was called you? a guest aide. Uh, sound like <laughs> I didn't know what else to call you. Right. Yeah, sound like a good job description. And like I say, I posed for a lot of pictures, uh, baited a lot of fishing hooks, <laughs> repaired a lot of fishing poles, and I was either Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn, whatever the guests wanted me to be. Uh, and when you really look at it, uh, Huckleberry Finn had the fire red hair and the freckles. Tom was sort of more of a sandy blonde uh, uh, kid. But uh, uh, so wait, so while, while you're sitting there. And you're deboning fish in the middle of the uh, summer. Degutting. <laughs> I'm sorry, degutting. When you're degutting these fish in Disneyland in the middle of summer, are you like, yeah, this is exactly what I hoped I was going to be doing when I walked up to Walt? Uh. No, uh, but, but but it was. Uh, I don't think I, that ever went through my. It was part of the job. Yeah. That was explained to me as part of the job. So that was acceptable. You know, back in those days, you did a lot of things that you know you were just you know you know that's the job doing. You want to pose for pictures? You're also going to clean some fish. Yeah. So uh, and I, I would respond to either Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer. I didn't respond to Becky Thatcher or Indian Joe. <laughs> Uh, and I did that all through uh, uh, junior high school and high school. Uh, I remember one time Walt came over uh, to the park uh, and uh, early early one morning, and he said, "You know, Tom, I'm going to rehab Tom Sawyer's Island. Let's walk the island, and uh, I want you to tell me what you think the island needs." Uh, and I'm going, okay, that's that's pretty good. Now, later in my life, we were told, thou shalt not art direct. But during this time, I hadn't had that, that speech yet. So we were walking the island, and, and I told, you know, well, that we have lookout point. Okay, and I told Walt, I said, well, where lookout point is, we need a treehouse. Okay, and then we have Fort Wilderness, and, you know, we needed an escape tunnel from Fort Wilderness. And uh, so when the island came back up from, from rehab in 1958, okay, uh, we had an escape tunnel from Fort Wilderness. We had a treehouse up on the top of the island. We also had merry-go-round rock, teeter-totter rock, castle rock, uh, but those weren't part of my ideas. I think those were Walt's ideas. Okay. Uh, so in turn, I, I'll, I'll take credit for, for art directing the treehouse and the escape tunnel. But did it sink into you then, I mean, obviously certainly now, that you, you know, Walt didn't dismiss you as a 12-year-old boy with silly ideas. He actually took your ideas and he executed on them. So when the island reopens and you look at it, was there that sense of pride, like, I did that, like, that was all my idea? Um, I, I was very impressed that that, that we had a treehouse and a escape tunnel. Uh, but I think uh, I think Walt's in, uh, philosophy all through his life has always been employee involvement. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, all the people that worked at Wed was people that he'd go talk to and 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 say, you know, what would you like to do? And then he'd say, okay, well, you're going to go to work for Wed, and you can go do what you want to do, like the like the Bob Gers and the Waythel Rogers and and all those people out there. <clears throat> and, and and Walt listened to a lot of people. Huh? You know, when he was in there in the morning, he was talking to the landscape people. He was talking to the security people. That's another one. When the park opened, security was was a was a lessee. It was Burns Detective Agency. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I hear the story on one of them that Walt got up one and out walking the park one night out of the apartment, and one of the Burns Detective Agency uh, guards approached him and said, "You know who are you?" And he said, "Well, I'm Walt Disney." And he says, "I don't care who you are. You know, you can't be out here at this time of night." And at that point, is we no longer have Burn Detective Agency; we had Walt <laughs> had Disney security. So, so those are those stories that goes along that line. But, but uh, you know. Uh, you know, Walt listened to the guests. Walt listened to the to, to the people. He was always asking, you know, how how can we do it better? You know, what 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 do we need? You know, uh, and and trying to get a whole feel for what was going on during that time frame. And I think just as a quick aside, like so much about the story you've told so far, from a from a business and entrepreneurial perspective. So you were the the young consummate entrepreneur from a young age. You had that hustle. You had that drive. You certainly had the courage to be able to go for the thing that you wanted, whether it was the paper route to get to the bicycle, to get to Disneyland, to, to get to become Tom Sawyer slash Huck Finn slash Fish Gutter, to being able to go to somebody who was the head of this company who not just pacified you by listening, but actually paid attention and uh, took the recommendations that you and others made to heart. I mean, I think there's a lesson to be taken away from there, not just as an employee, but certainly as an employer, that, you know, you are not the end-all, be-all, that that sometimes the people who work for you and with you, you know, are able to um, contribute in remarkable ways. Yeah, well, I I think part of, you know, Lou, what you have to understand is, I didn't go, uh, yeah, I went and found Walt, but Walt came to me also so it's it was it was one of those it was sort of a sort of a two-way street so so he was soliciting my input versus me soliciting him to hire me so so it was it was sort which is of even a, more impressive right yeah yeah, yeah it yeah, was yeah. Sort, of, sort of a a mutual relationship there uh you know the last time i remember seeing walt uh, uh one of it was uh one of the deals that you're always looking for is that if Walt got totally inundated with people wanting autographs and that type of thing, he wasn't that familiar with on how to get out or backstage in the, in the park. And I, I remember it was uh, in the uh, uh, early early 60s. It was after Mary Poppins. So it was in the early 60s. It was in Frontierland, and he was sort of inundated, and uh, we were in between the the Oaks Tavern and the malt shop there were the silver banjo and 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 uh, uh, so I helped uh, I helped Walt get backstage and and uh, I told me you know, I'm, you know, I'm Tom Navy you hired me to be Tom Sawyer I said oh yeah I remember that you know and so we talked for a little bit but that was my last uh, encounter with Walt was back at that time frame. Did it um, as a kid? Did did the scope and the magnitude of of who you, not just who you were working for but who you were able to have such personal contact with, did it impact you then or it wasn't until maybe later on that, that um, the, the, the importance and the magnitude of who he was and the relationship that you had with him kind of sunk in? Well, you saw him every night on, uh, on Wednesday night on television, so, so he was very much a celebrity. And, you know, understand my mother was enamored with celebrities. Did she ask you for Walt? Did she ask you to get his autograph? <laughs> she, she tried a couple times. She didn't have, she didn't have that 
that that autograph. All those autograph books ended up with my younger sister, so I uh, that was one of the things that I really wanted, but that didn't materialize. Uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, a, a lot of it is being at the right place at the right time and and knowing what the opportunity is and seizing that opportunity. Uh, you know, I, I look at today's world and and uh, uh, there's a lot of people out there that are very focused. Uh, I was I was very uh, uh, open to change. Uh, a lot of people uh, have their their entire goals laid out for them, and they know if they don't do, you know, if I don't make director in five years, I'm going to go someplace else and try. Okay, so so uh, uh, those are those are things that you learn in, in dealing with the people. Uh, I think that's part of part of one of the things that I, I really feel so satisfied out of out of my years of employment is the, the folks that I've worked with uh, that I've watched and mentored and watched them grow and mature uh, in into uh, professions either within the the uh, uh, Disney experience or outside in the real world um, just uh, you know Back in the in the every day was a was a new record, a new learning curve, a new way of doing it. There wasn't a college of hospitality like there is today. You can't go to UCL and go to Rosen's College of Hospitality. There wasn't a college of hospitality back there, and you learned as you went forward, and and you had some great teachers and great mentors. Uh, I think one of the uh, my my stepfather took off when I was fairly uh, fairly young, so uh, a lot of the people at Disneyland filled in that void for me, uh, and became my my uh, uh, surrogate fathers and and uh, mentors through uh, through my life. That's how I ended up in Florida. Is is one of those one of those guys uh, was going to be the the operations manager for the transportation uh, operation here in Florida, and he wanted me to open a monorail system for him. So, uh, well, because after after being Tom in Disneyland, you stayed in Disneyland for a while. You had other roles and responsibilities there too, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that that first summer was a slam dunk. I turned I turned 18 in in uh, in uh, 1961. Uh, I was a ride operator, uh, and I, I had learned how to drive a raft long before I became a. I used to come in early in the morning, and the guys would teach me how to drive and that type of thing. So so I was a, a very experienced raft operator before I was old enough to technically drive a raft. Uh, and so I started out uh, uh, very, very quickly on Tom Sawyer's Island, uh, and actually I was uh, a, a working foreman uh, four days a week, what they call relief foreman. The, the the day foreman had two days off, the night foreman had two days off, so I would fill and cover cover their shifts. And uh, uh, so I I was in a leadership role fairly fairly early. Uh, and then that <laughs> Disneyland was closed on Mondays and Tuesdays in the, in the wintertime. So on a, on a Sunday evening, uh, my supervisor at that time, Jim Hot, and uh, Jim came over and handed me a, a, a script. And he says, memorize this. You go to work on the jungle on Wednesday morning. And so show up at the jungle on Wednesday morning. Uh, you know, and uh, so I stopped by wardrobe and got changed my Tom Sawyer's costume for a, for a uh, Jungle Cruise uh, costume. And, and uh, showed up and made uh, three or four trips. 
Uh, and then from that point forward, I was a jungle skipper. And there were two attractions that you knew you were going to work as a male operator. Uh, that had the, the largest manpower was was the submarines and the jungle crews. Okay, those two attractions had the most amount of male employees. So you were gonna you were gonna work those as you worked up through the seniority list, then you were able to work on other attractions. Uh, <clears throat> with Disneyland being closed on Monday and Tuesdays, so you had a you had a schedule on Saturday, you had a schedule on Sunday, you had a schedule on Wednesday. So it was usually eight hours, eight hours, and four hours. And if Wednesday was busy. They would extend the shift down, so uh, I was having trouble making my rent uh, uh, on 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 twenty hours a week. So what I would do is I would come in on on Thursday mornings and on Friday mornings and sit in the operations office and wait for people to call in sick. Okay, so <laughs> so in turn, I a lot of attractions I didn't know that because I was there they went out and trained me so the next time somebody called in sick I was trained and ready to go on that. So you sort of made yourself the relief pitcher that just sat there on deck you know whenever somebody was was going to be sick you were going to be the guy that they went to. Oh yeah yeah well that in order to get the dollars to do that too Uh, and uh uh, so uh, I, I learned a lot of attractions that that uh, first year very 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 quick and and uh, uh, worked uh, uh, almost every attraction in the in the park with the exception of the monorail and steam trains and the reason being that those two attractions were run by Retlaw and Retlaw is Walter spelled backwards and Retlaw was a company that the Disney family owned. Okay, and uh, they actually ran the, the monorail and steam trains. And, and the, the, the situation, in order to, to work on the monorail, they wanted this image, and you had to be six foot tall. Well, I was never going to be six <laughs> foot tall, so that's why I never worked on the monorail. I feel your pain. Don't worry. I got <laughs> So um, you are there for a number of years. So you meet your wife eventually at, at Disneyland? Yeah. Well, yeah, we're we're right right about that that time frame uh, in, uh, in 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 nineteen sixty five. Uh, all the uh, the lessee contracts started to expire. Uh, some were five year contracts. A good portion were were ten year contracts. And all the fast food operations at Disneyland was run by UPT United Paramount Theaters, which was a subsidiary of ABC. How things go around, they come around, that type of thing. And their contract ran out. And they took about, oh, 50 of us and trained us in management in fast food operations. And so I went to work in the Oaks Tavern in Frontierland. And uh, my wife-to-be was the lead counter lead uh, in there. Uh, and uh, uh, right at the same time frame, I got an invite from my other uncle, not Uncle Walt, <laughs> Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam wanted me to participate in a in a little bit of a, a war in Vietnam, and uh, I, I, there was no way I was wasn't going to pass a physical, and so I sort of made you know, we do some dumb things in our life, but I, I sort of said if I'm going to go to Vietnam, I, I'm in my mind I want to be the best trained, and as far as I'm concerned, the Marine Corps is going to train me the best to survive. So I went down and enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, and I listed for a three-year hitch, and the reason the reason being a three-year hitch, I had no reserve time. It was three years active duty, 
three years inactive duty because uh, the, the people that were in active reserves weren't real high on the schedules list because they had to go play soldier uh, one weekend a month and they had to, had to do a summer camp and, and that type of thing. So I didn't want that obligation. Uh, and so I <clears throat> ended up going in the Marine Corps uh, and uh, I, was, I had orders to Da Nang. And I was, had everything all packed up, and I had had uh, they made an aviation radio repairman out of me. Uh, somehow my aptitude was strong in electronics, and I ended up uh, going to by sign up for a three-year hitch. I was eligible for all the schooling that a four-year hitch would have. So I ended up going to radio repair school. Uh, the incentive to graduate from radio repair school was that if you failed, they made a radio operator out of you, and the life expectancy of a radio operator was rather short. So you didn't want to be a radio operator. So I passed, and I ended up uh, getting promoted to uh, corporal out of school, and I had orders to Da Nang, and uh, I had everything packed up and going home on uh, uh, it was a St. Patrick's Day weekend, uh, and uh, on I, I had the Battle of Highway 101. Uh, Pacific Coast Highway, uh, a uh, drunk hit me head on and tried to kill me and put me in the hospital for five months. And then from there, I ended up going back to school. And this is the same time that Walt passed away. The New York World's Fair and Walt's passing happened all during the time that I was in the, in the Marine Corps. Uh, and uh, uh, so I, I ended up getting mustered out of the Marine Corps. Uh, went back to Cal State Fullerton, dreams of grandeur of being an electronical engineer. Uh, about a year and a half into schooling at Cal State Fullerton, I realized I wasn't going to be a, a good electronical engineer. And what I really wanted to be was uh, in rides and attractions at, at Disney. And uh, they started interviewing uh, there for all the people that come to Florida. So I went through a round of interviews and I ended up getting uh, promoted into management uh, in uh, 1970, uh, and uh, just prior to that, I was home on on leave, uh, and I ran into a mutual friend of my wife, and and she gave me Janice's number, and I called her, and we started dating, and we got married in in uh, uh, June in 1968. So the the, um, the everything that's the, the plane is literally in flight in terms of Walt Disney World coming into being. How does it come to pass that you, because um, I want you to tell the story of not just how you literally made your way out to Florida, but how did it come to pass that you were going to come out here and be part of um, the opening team for Walt Disney World? Well, for, I, I only thought I was going to be in Florida for three <laughs> years. Uh, I, the, I, I had the opportunity to, uh, to interview uh, to open the monorail system here uh, with uh, Pete Crimmings, who I had worked for off and on through the years and was one of my mentors. And uh, uh, we were, the company was going to build a ski area in Mineral King, which was just south of Sequoia National Forest, which is about halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Uh, so uh, that was my goal, and to go to work in transportation and, and to make a name for myself in transportation. And then the whole concept of Mineral King was they were going to build a 
parking area in a village and everybody got transported from the parking area up to the village uh, so transportation was a very key element and role there. Uh, so <clears throat> in turn I came down uh, uh, to Florida. <laughs> I'd never been east of Phoenix. Uh, my mother told me we went to Chicago on the train but I, I, I don't remember that. Uh, but uh, Janice and I uh, made that decision, uh, and uh, I uh, had two Volkswagens at the time, uh, and so we uh, we decided to drive a Volkswagen and tow a Volkswagen. <laughs> uh, had a had a a, a dark blue convertible, uh, and had a yellow uh, uh, Volkswagen, and in the back of the yellow Volkswagen had uh, a sign put in it, two more bugs for Florida, <laughs> and so we drove country, cost country. It took us about six days to drive here. It was it was rather interesting. It was like 30 miles an hour up the overpass and 70 miles an hour down the overpass. The, the, one, the one that was really uh, scaring was coming through the Mobile Tunnel. Okay, so coming down in the tunnel, I'm click. I'm staying up with the traffic. Well, coming up on the other side of the tunnel, uh, I'm running a little slow, and I get over and clear, and right there, there are toll booths. Okay, and I got, I got, I got the brakes on. I got the emergency, <laughs> and we're sliding through, and and slow, slow right through the toll. I had to get out and go back and pay for both the cars to go back and get in. But that was a little scary on that one. So you're, you're, again, this dream of wanting to <clears throat> operate the monorail comes to fruition in a very, in a different time, in a different way, in a different place, because it, it takes you coming out to what little there was of Orlando at that time to um, help sort of manage the monorail operations and, and part of the construction, too? Uh, yeah, well, it, it, there's a whole concept that was developed during New York World's Fair called PICO, Project Installation Coordination. Okay, and what they do is they take people out of the operating side, and you get assigned into the into the construction and project side, uh, and your coordinators, sort of gophers and or whatever needed uh, to to help along that line. And then as you hire people, you train those people, and then when the attraction opens up, then you become the management group that operates that rides and attraction. So that was sort of the philosophy on the, and the monorail was my my, my attraction. And uh, uh, the, the we had uh, the two beams, the express beam and local beam, uh, the contemporary and why we're sitting in here in the Polynesian uh, were the two hotels on the on what we call the local uh, beam and the express beam went from the TTC, Ticket and Transportation Center, to the Magic Kingdom. Okay, so those, that was the concept uh, behind the monorail system. So if the stories that I've heard are true, uh, you very much were a, a hands-on person when it comes to your monorail. And when I say hands-on, I mean not boots on the ground. I mean boots on the beam. Is it true that you used to walk the beams? Well, U.S. Steel built the two hotels uh, and the... And the uh, 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 a, a golf resort and also a a complex called the the Court of Flags down on on I four and Sand uh, uh, Lake right in that area. Well, they were very difficult to deal with. 
Yeah, thank God that Roy bought them out right after opening. But they were very difficult to go. And it would take me sometimes as long as four hours just to get clearance, okay, to get into the hotel to check my stations, okay, past their security people, because I didn't work for U.S. Steel. I worked for, for Disney. Okay, so uh, I found the easiest way for me to check the stations was to walk the beam. Uh, yeah, to the Polish, no big deal. Maybe maybe two city blocks to the Polynesian. Now the beam is thirty inches wide, so it's 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 wider than this table. Okay, so I mean thirty inches isn't a lot when you're you know sixty feet above the ground. Well, yeah, and and uh, you you know you don't do it in high winds and lightning <laughs> and, and and thunderstorms and 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 but but in turn I could I could get up into into the contemporary very very quickly. <clears throat> the problem that we had was was the uh, the two beams that were on the north end of the contemporary were uh, all the beams that you look that have the curved bottom. To them, those were fabricated in Tacoma, Washington, and shipped here by rail to Taft, and from Taft they were trapped over to property. Well, the two beams that are, uh, were the 110 foot long beams were on the north end of the Contemporary Hotel. The train went right, and the beams went straight ahead, <laughs> and uh, had a snowstorm right after that, so we couldn't find the beams. So they had to, in turn. Uh, uh, refabricate those beams, so we're about almost three months late in closing the loop on the monorail to have a closed loop. Uh, so we did a lot of training and a lot of shuttling, uh, going going back and forth. But in turn, I, I you know I, I checked the stations out and, and uh, uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, just by clicking up there, and and back when we originally originally opened the monorail system, the monorail, the parking lot, watercraft, and the submarines were all on the same radio frequency. And uh, what we didn't realize is that the batteries on the the uh, radios in the monorail uh, had a very short transmit life on it, so you could only transmit maybe two, three minutes and you're out about it. You could listen, but you couldn't transmit. And uh, I remember one, one breakdown. I had a young lady in the, in, in the train, and, and uh, she did her transmission, and then we couldn't talk to her. Uh, and so the easiest thing was to walk out on the parallel, because beams are parallel, walk out on the parallel beams, have her open up the door. I talked her through <laughs> what she needed to do and had the work tractor come out and tow her train in and get the guests off and that type of thing. But it was one of those those things that you did. Without a harness, you're not safety rigged, you're just you just walk in the beams. Yeah. yeah. It was a different day and age, right? Yeah, it, 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 was, it was a different world right. back in that time frame. I, I would say if... if, if, uh, if the director knew that I was watching. He'd probably be a little, little, right. yeah, little upset with me. But you know, yeah, those are, those are things. You know, we, you know, we rode in cars without seatbelts. We drank water out of the hose in the yard. You know, there was a lot of stuff that we, that, that we did back there that you wouldn't dare right. do in today's world. And they had, there actually were plans, because people still to this day talk about um, expanding the monorail. I mean, there were plans at one point, right, to expand the monorail out to, to uh, like 192, like an industrial park, weren't there? Well, uh, if, if, if you look at the entire project, okay, you know, that, that uh, the Magic Kingdom 
Uh, and what you see today, I think, was in uh, uh, phase 35 or <laughs> 37 or whatever. But, but in between the, the Magic Kingdom complex and what was proposed as the original EBCOP pro- project, there was a whole industrial park and an airport. Okay, so all those things were were in the in the master plan. Now, as you know, the master plan didn't get totally totally built. But uh, yeah, I've talked about. But when when, when you uh, to uh, the monorail is very costly, and uh, uh, the, you know the the advantage here was you have sort of a restricted. Everybody's got to either ride the monorail back then, or the Osceolas, or the trams. Okay, didn't have the bus fleet we have today. Didn't have the ferries that we had today. Don't didn't have uh, ten monorails as we have today. Uh, ten six car monorails versus six five car monorails. Yes. So you know things have things have changed and and going forward. And so your your role in in Walt Disney World changed. So again, you know it's interesting going from. A very on-stage presence as as Tom slash Huck to sort of uh, more backstage with the monorails, but that was not your only role in Disney, right? You you ended up doing more in terms of um, uh, logistics and whatnot. Well, I, I sort of got tagged as a nuts and bolts guy, and sort of got tagged as as the guy that you wanted uh, on your team. A new construction and new openings, and so uh, after after we opened the monorail up, I ended up uh, decided to build Tom Sawyer's Island in Frontierland Liberty Square, uh, and the Richard F. Irvine. So I went on that project. Uh, the minute we wrapped up that project in 1973, uh, went on a project uh, to rebuild uh, uh, Tomorrowland. <coughs> when Tomorrowland opened up, it was pretty scarce of what was in the Tomorrowland area. Uh, and so we put in uh, the Wedway, the Star Jets, Carousel of Progress, and Space Mountain. So 73 to 75. And then once we opened all that up, then the decision was to take 20,000 leagues down. And, and when we originally opened 20,000 leagues, all the art directors that came out here went to Silver Springs and were enamored with the clarity of the water <laughs> and everything. And so the decision was to pump the water out of the aquifer through 20,000 leagues. From 20,000 leagues, it went into the moat. And from the moat, it went to the Jungle Cruise. And from the Jungle Cruise, it went into the Rivers of America. From the Rivers of America, it went down the Lightboat Channel into the Seven Seas Lagoon. And from the Seven Seas Lagoon, it got distributed over the 55 miles of drainage canals that are on property. Okay, well, that was great. The only trouble is you didn't have the volume of water coming and being pumped through the 20K that you had coming out of out of uh, the springs at Silver Springs. Uh, and uh, they started getting pockets of dead air in that, and start, algae started growing. Uh, so it finally made the decision to enclose 20K and chlorinate it and filter it. Uh, and so we did that in, in uh, 1975. And so once we wrapped that up and opened that back up and, and got that running, uh, had the uh, had the opportunity to go to back to Frontierland because we were going to build this little train over there called Big Thunder. 
Okay, and so we, we built Big Thunder, and just right as we opened up Big Thunder, uh, there was another little project down the road uh, that got uh, uh, funded and ready to go. Um, and uh, if, if you remember when I said earlier, I only came to Florida to be here for three years. <laughs> Well, we were going to build an area, uh, a ski area in in uh, Mineral King. Well, that sort of got shut down by the Sierra Club because of the roadway that had to be built there, and the Sierra Club didn't want that roadway built, and they petitioned. So, so that one got so that project moved to an area above Truckee, California, which is north, just north of Lake Tahoe, uh, and that clicked along quite well uh, until there was a little conflict of of. Uh, uh, people going on our board from the, uh, in order to get the permits and everything going on there. And Cod Walker at that point basically said, uh, uh, no, we aren't going to build any ski areas, and all the monies that we have, I'm going to focus on, on the Epcot project. So if you sort of look at it as Disneyland, as Walt's Park, uh, Walt Disney World Magic Kingdom was sort of Roy's Park, yeah, you know Walt's Walt's dreams and ideas and that type of thing, but but Roy brought it uh, into this world, and uh, uh, Card decided that you know Epcot was going to be his park. If you were a little farther down the road, uh, then uh, you know the studio and Animal King, Kingdom uh, ties into Eisner and, and his parks. Uh, and Shanghai is is uh, Iger's park. So so you say everybody, and I, I sort of look at a company sort of has a a twenty year cycle. So in the 20s, Disney was developed. In the 40s, went through World War II, and it almost cost the, the company. Okay, in the 60s, Walt passed away. In the 80s was the end of the Eisner era and the Iger era, and we're getting ready for another one down the road. But I sort of look at big 20-year cycles along that. Now, I forgot where we were going in the conversation that I went out into the never, never land. Oh! I got uh, I got a call uh, and asked if I wanted to be involved in the Epcot project, and I said, "Oh, absolutely!" Norm Durgis and and uh, Bill Sullivan uh, were going to be uh, the guys out there, and uh, I, I thought I was going to be a pavilion coordinator, uh, but in turn, Norm wanted me to uh, uh, run a warehouse complex that they had. We, we were in the process of developing what we called an item tracking system. Uh, for OFI. You know, OFI is owner-furnished items. So anything that we bought for show installation, it was basically going to be installed by Buena Vista Construction, okay, was called OFI. And we would tag and label that. So all the show set pieces, all the props, all the animation, all that stuff fell in that category. And uh, what, what, what was going to happen was there was going to be a warehouse the warehouse, that project, it was scheduled for later installation. Anything that came and could be installed was directly to the site to be installed. And I had a crew of people that were working for me, and that's what we did. Okay, uh, and so uh, in turn went through uh, the opening of Epcot. Uh, that was uh, that was a real, t- you know, had gone through the, you know, through the opening of Disneyland as a child. <laughs> went through the the opening of Walt Disney World as as a Magic Kingdom as a young adult, 
And Epcot now, I had the cha- uh, chance to use all those skill sets to go forward, and it just fit like a glove right in there and, and headed headed down the road. I adapted uh, very quickly to the warehouse operation. I sort of took that in my mind, and it's it's sort of almost like, like any ride or attraction or running a parking lot. Right. you got to bring things in. you got to park it. you got to be able to get So that's the way. So I, I was real easy to equate to that. Uh, this owner furnished, uh, we gave everything an item number. All the shows were built and bought off in California, and uh, they were built in Tahunga. Our directors would buy them off, uh, and then they would disassemble them, number and label them, load them on a truck, okay, send them to Florida, either to be warehoused or to be installed. Okay, <clears throat> and they get to Florida, and a good portion of it is we handled about four hundred million dollars worth of materials through the warehouse. Uh, you'd open the back of the truck and you look and you go. God, how did they get that in there? Okay. Then the next question is, how are we going to get it out of there and not break it? Understand, this is a one-of-a-kind item. You can't go to Home Depot and buy another one. So, so in turn, that was the challenge that went along that, and uh, we went all through that process. And and I, I, I think you know, if you've heard of the storming of the Magic Kingdom or that type of thing, that uh, you know, Epcot coming real close to bankrupting this company, and it did not hit the return on investment. And uh, uh, so all of us that went through that, opening that process and getting through that relief, all of a sudden got into another of didn't know if you're going to have a job tomorrow. Okay, uh, but you know, thank God that that uh, uh, Roy Disney went out and did his thing and and uh, got the Bass Brothers on board and and made the decision to hire Frank Wells and and uh, uh, Michael Eisner and and brought those people on and got everything coming out of it. Right at that time frame, I made a major career change. I went from being in rides and attractions and guest oriented. Uh, to the support side of the business. I liked what I did in the warehouse portion of it during NABCOT, and I sort of enjoyed that and had a job opportunity to, to go into warehousing uh, for Walt Disney World. And I did that for the last 22 years of my career. So your, your three-year stint at Walt Disney World did not just take you from Anaheim to Orlando, but somehow your circuitous journey also took you to Paris, Correct. Yes. Uh, after after we went through that whole process of storming the Magic Kingdom, getting everything back online, and and this property just exploded with hotels and hotel rooms, and and the the, the stock went from chunk change up, up into the hundreds again, and uh, the whole decision that uh, that uh, Michael made was to build a park in Paris, uh, and uh, so uh, we. In turn, uh, I had uh, the director of distribution for Dis- uh, uh, Disneyland Paris. Let's say it was called Euro Disney back at that time frame. Uh, over for almost a year, training with us, and he felt pretty comfortable. <clears throat> and I had gone over there for a couple uh, visits uh, to sit warehouse operations, sit through some planning uh, and concept. Uh, uh, process uh, uh, but I wasn't slotted to go to Paris uh, <laughs> in, in, in the latter part of well actually the 1st of January of, of 1992 
I get a telephone call from my boss, Howard Rowland. And Howard Rowland's in Paris. And this is on a, on a, on a Friday morning. <clears throat> and Howard basically says, Tom, I want you in Paris on Monday. <laughs> uh, when, I want you to meet with me in Balmolay. And uh, I said, okay. He says, I got the travel company working on tickets. Uh, and uh, we'll see you Monday. Uh, and sure enough, uh, tickets showed up, went to the airport, packed up a bag, and uh, I got on an airplane and, and uh, came to, uh, uh, to, to Paris and, and got off at, in uh, Orly Airport and found a car and, uh, and uh, drove downtown Paris and met Paul and Howard. And uh, 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 Howard said, Paul, Paul Millet, who was, uh, was uh, the uh, uh, director of purchasing, uh, who had run the warehouse system here, who I work for, uh, basically says, Tom, what I want you to do is, is, is be a liaison and help John Louis. Uh, get through opening and do pretty much what you did for Epcot, okay, here in Paris, and so that's what I did. So uh, uh, in turn, we went. Uh, uh, I, I, I finally left the end of April. The park opened oh, April 12th. It's hard to believe. It's only only a. Uh, 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 three four weeks from now, and, and we're going to go through a, a birthday for for right. Paris. But uh, able to uh, go through that that process, uh, uh, got back here, uh, uh, went through um, uh, uh, modern material handling, which is a publication associated with warehousing and that type of thing. Came to us and wanted, to, and this is right at Walt Disney World's twenty fifth. Anniversary uh, came to us and wanted to do a little short story on on uh, uh, the 25th anniversary, and so okay, so they they came in and we showed them what we did, and they got so involved in what we were doing uh, that then turned this little two three page article turned into a 20 page article and was their lead publication uh, for that year and won the awards uh, that they, they just didn't quite understand how we could handle a city of about 250,000 people back at that time on a daily basis. So if you take everybody that's staying on property, everybody that's coming into the property as a day guest, and, and all the food and all the merchandise and, and all the equipment to keep that going on a daily basis comes through the warehouse operation. So they were very impressed with that. And that's, even as a kid, that was something that always impressed me, how this place really is a real working city that operates 24-7, 365, and the the logistics of not just the manpower and the guests, but of the things that we don't think about as guests. You know, all the things that need to populate the shelves and the stores and, and the, the restaurants um, is, is an incredible undertaking. Um, but eventually your, your very long journey from, you know, 12-year-old um, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn to coming back to Walt Disney World um, you decided it's time for it to come to an end, and you retire what year? I, I, I retired in 03. I had I hired a financial advisor back when we, when, when, when we did a living trust, and, that the, and uh, uh, he did very well, and uh, you know, Mike Wicks, and, and uh, uh, so I asked him, uh, my 60th birthday was coming right around. Uh, June is a very active month for me. Uh, my, my birthday is in June. 
My company anniversary date is in June. My wedding date is in June. My retirement date is in June. Father's Day is in June. So June was a very active month for me. And I, I basically told my, you know, I'd like to retire in June. So if, if you ever retire from the Walt Disney Company, you want to retire from the last day of the month. Okay, that way you get your pay for that week, and then the first day of the next month you get your retirement check. Okay, so so I in turn made that decision, and and uh, uh, so told my boss, uh, you know, that I had planned on retiring, and he sort of said, "Well, Tom, you know, what, what would you like as a retirement gift?" And I told him, I said, you know, if, you know, if I qualify, what I'd really like is a window on Main Street at Disneyland and one at Walt Disney World, and so. Hey, but I thought that just sort of went this way. So about two, three weeks later, he comes back and he says, look, couldn't do the Disneyland thing, but it got your window on, on Main Street at Walt Disney World. So if you ever come into to, to the uh, Magic Kingdom at, at Walt Disney World and you look at the cinema, my window is right above it on the, on the right-hand side. And what does your window read? Uh, it is Sawyer Fence Painting. Uh, and proprietor Tom Nabby, uh, Anaheim, California, Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Uh, so uh, yeah, super. It's 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 one of those things. So I I thought that was that was I, I thought that was the 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 height, the 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 um, la cream the cream, you know, type thing. And and my goal every fifth anniversary of Disneyland is to be on. Main Street at Disneyland on July 17th, uh, and uh, so we were out there for the 50th anniversary. Uh, a couple previous trips, the mouse paid for it, but most <laughs> all the trips, uh, you know, I've paid for it. And, and uh, uh, so we were there, and uh, the the uh, Disneyland Alumni Club was having a dinner dance, and so we went. You know, I paid my admission, went to the dinner, dinner dance, and we were there. And, and a gentleman by the name of Jim Cora, Jim Cora retired as a, as the president of Disney International, and uh, had worked with Jim on opening here at Walt Disney World, and and had uh, worked a little bit alongside Jim at in Paris. Uh, and he sort of said, "Hey, Tom, I'll see you in September." And uh, anybody that ever worked with Jim Cora, he's one of these guys that'll sort of toss out and see if <laughs> see, see if he can hook you on something that if, if, if he hook you he'll play it to the hilt so I he, and I said no Jim you know, I'll be back here in five years but I don't plan on being back here in September he says oh no you know uh, you and Sully and I are going to be inducted as Disney legends I said, oh, okay, well, you know, and, but I didn't bite on that. You know, you know. So when I got back to the hotel room, I called my sister who was house-sitting for us here in Florida. And I said, is there a letter there from the studio? And she said, yeah. And I said, would you open it up and tell me what it says? And she says, oh, it's, it's something about you being inducted as a Disney legend uh, uh, in September. And so Cora wasn't pulling my leg. It was a true thing. So, so in turn, the Disney Legend program was very much uh, uh, Roy E. Disney's thing. He was just, just uh, totally enamored in that. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, at the, I think I mentioned earlier uh, in the conversation that uh, uh, when uh, when I got inducted as a legend, it was the same time that Peter Jennings passed away. Um, and so uh, Marty Sklar and Roy uh, hosted 
the uh, uh, the, the legends luncheon and, and, and induction. Um, and I had the opportunity to talk with Roy a little bit. I'm a sailor, okay, and Roy's a sailor. And so we talk about sailing, and, and uh, my boat's 16 foot long. His boat's 160 <laughs> foot. But, you know, you know. You know the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah sailing is sailing. Uh, so in turn, uh, that one, and it's really nice to be a living legend. The alternative sucks. So, but uh, uh, I had the opportunity. What they, uh, what they do is, is uh, uh, they have a, a clay uh, mold there at the ceremony, and, and you do your palm prints and you sign it, and then they cast a bronze plaque, and then at, there's a, uh, a Legends uh, Plaza at the studio, and it gets hung in the studio. So, so uh, the next trip out in for Disneyland's 55th, I had called the archives, and because I hadn't seen my plaque, and uh, asked to borrow his Legends uh, Award, and we went out to the to the gardens and, and took some photos out in uh, out in that area of myself and my black. So that's sort of neat. You know, you have you have seen so much, you have done so much from you know being there on opening day as a guest to 24 hours later being there as a guest facing cast member in a role that you designed and was had created for you. Um, you knew Walt. You interacted with Walt. You influenced Walt. Um, you've done so much here in world. You are in, in Paris. You're a legend. You are a member of the Disneyland the Club 55. Um, you've seen and done so much. And of all the things, when you look back on your time with the company, um, is there any one thing, any one moment that you look back on most vividly? I can't say favorite because I'm sure there's so many but most vividly or most fondly and, and the one that sort of is most meaningful to you? Uh, working for WED, uh, uh, being Tom Sawyer, absolutely. But, you know, you know I had... I had Because you were the only one, right? Uh, no, they, were, they, were, they held the contest to replace me. So they had one replacement, okay. and then after that, then there wasn't any more Tom Sawyers. But uh, uh, working in, in, in WED... Watching things come from the from a, a storyboard concept to reality to build it to watch guests actually appreciate it and and ride on it and that that thing is phenomenal. Uh, you know that was that that was probably the the, the cream to cream. Uh, the, the the making the transition into. Uh, uh, warehousing. One of the things that uh, the the hardest thing was trying to get the people in the warehouse operation to feel part of the show. And what I did there is is I, I went to to the institute and we partnered with the institute and we brought people in to tour the warehouse operation because they got enamored with that just like the people from Modern Material Handling. So we would bring people in and tour them through the warehouse. Well, I didn't do the tour in the warehouse. I, in turn, had the warehouse people tour the people in the warehouse. I did do a Q&A on it. Uh, some of the things I do, I, uh, uh, once a month I, I do a Disney Heritage thing uh, for RCID, uh, Reedy Creek Improvement District. They decided to, to go through and retrain all their 
older employees along with new employees that were coming on board and the manager of HR for them, uh, who was a drinking buddy of mine, uh, <laughs> asked me if I would come share my story with them. I said, yeah, and that was three three years ago. So, you know, every third Friday of the month I get to do that. Uh, I do a lot of speaking uh, for uh, uh, Disney events. I, I, I do uh, 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 the uh, Disney Anna Fan Club uh, several times, uh, uh, the college program. Uh, I, I do it for the ambassadors. I enjoy that. Now, one of the questions I normally get at the end of my presentation, and it's about an hour presentation, uh, we're a little longer on this one, uh, but uh, you know, is, is, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book? And uh, uh, so I did. Uh, so if, 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 if you want to hear the real long version of the story of Tom Nabby, uh, then you can pick up my book. It's available on Amazon.com, uh, or uh, you can go to my website, TomNabby.com, if you want to personalize the autograph. And I will link to that um, in the show notes. And I have one last question for you because I want to sort of flip things a little bit. Because now... You come to the parks, you come to Magic Kingdom with your young granddaughter. Give me your impression now coming to the parks as a guest versus when you were here as a cast member from sort of helping to create that magic that we talk about to experiencing it and sharing it with your own grandkid. Well, it, it's, it, it's phenomenal. Uh, I, I, she's just just a little over two uh, right now, and, and I'm going, you know... What is a two-year-old gonna know? Well, I tell you, she knows. She knows the characters, the character breakfasts on property. She just, she just loves them, eats them up. Uh, all the experiences in the park. Uh, I, you know, w- 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 one time here, and we went to Epcot, not met, but we went down, and she's, she's totally involved in Anna, and and uh, Elsa, and and Olaf uh, uh, from Frozen, and to watch her, the 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 interaction of her and Anna and Elsa uh, uh, down there is is just and, and and the kids that play those characters do an excellent job uh, also but uh, uh, to I, I I know now why I work where I work so I could get my main cake pass so I could get her in on a, on a daily basis if I want to except for blackout dates well look at that that happiness and that pride that you feel as a grandfather towards your granddaughter is the same thing that you, when you were being Tom Sawyer, gave to those parents and grandparents back in 1955. So, um, you know, as a guest, as a parent, um, I thank you for everything that you've done to contribute to this Disney magic that we know and love so much. And I will tell Tom, you were worth the wait. You were worth waiting four years to get this interview done um, because I could listen to your stories all day. Again, your, your book is fascinating and filled with so many more. And uh, I appreciate you spending time today and certainly for everything that you've done for us. So very low. I'm sorry you had to wait four years, <laughs> but, but I've been practicing. Uh, so, so, so you got the best of the best. <laughs> Excellent. Tom, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The reverend wild, that irresponsible child. I tried to teach him, but who can reach him? He never can be found. Leaves his trash around, just won't learn, and he just keeps turning away. Tom Sawyer, the devil's got him in tow. Tom 
Sawyer, he's grief and worry and woe. He's late for supper and late for school, and he's taking me for a fool. I'll bet Tom Sawyer will be the death of me yet. Time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes in what you see, sometimes in what you hear, occasionally in what you eat. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Of course, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week's question was about one of my personal favorite attractions in Walt Disney World. I think it's a quintessential, simple classic, the Tomorrowland Transit Authority slash Wedway People Mover. There's so much that I love about this attraction, including the narration, and that's what your question was about last week. Because I said that on the attraction, you hear actually six different voices on the overhead narration. And I gave you not one, but two of the six that you hear. You hear first the female safety announcer who asks you to please step carefully onto the moving platform, the hands, arms, feet, and legs, yada, yada, yada. Of course, there's also your male announcer who welcomes you aboard the Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover, your highway in the sky, sit back, relax, Grand Circle Tour, etc., etc. However, there's four others that I asked you to identify that you hear during your Grand Circle Tour of Tomorrowland. I want to first thank the over 1,200 of you that entered, either got this one correct or were very creative in your answers. Of course, the correct answers were Stitch, who says, I don't think so, as we coming up on his somewhat great escape. Mickey, that's right, it's out of this world, as you approach Star Traders. That was not meant to be a Mickey impression, by the way. Buzz Lightyear, who calls all space rangers to report to your star cruiser and join him on this daring space mission against the evil Emperor Zerg. And of course, Roz, and there's no way I'll try and do this when he says, yeah, 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 very good. Keep it moving. Run a tight schedule here. So once again, thanks to all of you who entered, whether you got it correct or just had some fun with the question. Because again, last week you were playing for not just 102 ways to save money for that Walt Disney World book, not just all seven of my virtual audio walking towards the Magic Kingdom, both of which still on sale for $10 each in the WW Radio shop, but I digress. But you were also playing for the Magic Band cover. You were playing for some WW Radio stickers, a pop socket, and brand new, started last week, a shirt from our WW Radio collection. If you go to www.radio.com slash shirts, you'll see our entire collection of not just WW Radio logo shirts and some unique designs that we created ourselves, but some Disney, Marvel, Star Wars shirts as well. So when you enter the contest this week, make sure you include your shirt size as an option on the form. However, let's go back because last week's winner, randomly selected from all the correct entries, is... Adam Kane. So, Adam, congratulations. Because you use the online form, I do have your shirt size. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, last week, I really wanted to test your memory as to how well you listened to the overhead narration on the TTA slash People Mover that you've probably heard dozens if not hundreds of times this week i want to go a little bit simpler again it's not what you hear but what you see because one of my favorite attractions in disney's animal kingdom is not just flight of passage or the nomad lounge but it's expedition everest i think it's a wonderful mix of storytelling excitement and details and that's what your question's about this week because all you need to do is 
tell me simply, what is the name of the fictitious travel agency or the tour company that runs Expedition Everest? Right? Again, it's all based in story. There's a fictitious tour company that that guides you on that steam donkey around and through the mountain. So you have until Sunday, March 4th, to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast. There you will find the entry form. Again, you're going to play for the book, the tours, the Magic Band cover, the stickers, the pop socket, and a shirt from the WW Radio collection. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much. I know how valuable your time is, and I appreciate you spending and sharing it with me this and every week. Thanks, as always, to some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family, including Michael Kell, Thomas Zukas, Bob Ostrowski, Eric Covino, Smith Getterman, and Sue Passauer. I really appreciate each and every one of you. And if you want to not only help the show keep the lights on, but also get exclusive rewards every month, I create a new scavenger hunt. We have a private Facebook group. I'll send you a personalized WW Radio Nation Magic Band cover. There's also Nation logo gear, t-shirts, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World, and we do an exclusive live video group call every month, as well as access to special events and more. To find out more, visit www.radio.com slash support, and don't forget that a portion of the proceeds of your contribution does go to our Dream Team project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. Please be sure and visit the site over at www.radio.com for our daily blog post videos, subscribe to our newsletter, and lots more. Also, don't forget to be part of the conversation, be part of the community by joining our group over on Facebook. If you go to www.radio.com slash boxpeople, You can be part of our group and also make sure you have notifications turned on either on the group or on our page because I'd love for you to join me every Wednesday night for WW Radio Live. I do a live video broadcast, an interactive chat where we can have really have a two-way conversation. We talk about either the week's Disney news, random questions. We play 20 questions. There's contests, and you can call in with your questions and comments and, again, really make it very conversational. That's every Wednesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. You can watch and participate either in the WW Radio Box People group or by liking our page at facebook.com slash Radio. Just make sure you turn on notifications and see first so you don't miss not just the weekly broadcasts, but the other ones that I do oftentimes in the parks as well. Of course, you know I believe that nothing beats a handshake and a hug. That is why I continue to do monthly meetups every month in Walt Disney World. Thanks to everybody who came out brave the heat uh, this past weekend to the Daily Poutine in Disney Springs. We had a great turnout. It was so great to see longtime friends put faces to names and meet some new friends as well. And congratulations to everybody who participated in the Princess Half Marathon weekend last weekend, both members of the running team as well as anybody who not just finished, but more importantly, having the strength and courage to line up at the start. Um, I was so grateful to be able to be out there on the course, not getting in your way on the course, but being on the sidelines to help cheer you on. And thanks to everybody else who came out and joined me on the sidelines to help cheer all of the runners this weekend. 
Our next meet of the month in Walt Disney World will likely be Saturday, February 24th. I will have time and location and details on the WW Radio page soon. If you are going to be in San Diego this week, I'm going to be speaking at Social Media Marketing World, and we'll be doing a meetup together on Thursday, March 1st at 6.30 p.m. in the lobby bar of the Manchester Grand Hyatt. If you go to Facebook.com slash Lou Mangiello, I created an event there on my profile uh, anyone and everyone is welcome to attend. I'd love to meet you out there if you are there. Uh, obviously, I do a lot of meetups on the road as I travel to speak. And if I can come to speak at your conference, to your school, to your event, visit lumangelo.com. And more importantly, if I can help you individually turn your passion into your profession, turn that thing that you love into that thing that you do I'm happy to work with you, get on a call with you. Again, you can find out more by visiting loumangelo.com. Thanks as always to Becky Mankin and the entire team over at Mouse Fan Travel, my official and recommended travel provider. It doesn't matter if you're going to a Disney destination or anywhere in the world, she and her team of agents will give you the best possible prices, all available discounts and all at no cost to you. You can find them over at mousefantravel.com and then go subscribe to Celebrations Magazine by visiting celebrationspress.com. As always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not. Again, you prove that when I did get to meet so many of you this past weekend at the meet of the month. But all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. That's the way that our community and family will grow, not by putting out ads and it's by you inviting your friends and your family to be part of this incredible community that you have created. So if you like this or have a favorite episode, tweet out a link to it, share it with your friends over on Facebook. And if you can, take just 30 seconds to rate and review the show over on iTunes. That's incredibly helpful as well. Thanks to you. We have more than 1,500 five-star reviews. Would love to keep them coming. I want to thank some recent reviewers like the Andrew Raven who says, you found it. WDW Radio is not only the best podcast on any subject, but also one of the best pieces of content available in any form, anywhere. If you're a Disney fan or a fan of positivity and life in general, and you're looking for your home, you found it. Here's to another 500, Lou. Deftones3119 says this is the best source of information, discussion, and news of all things Disney. I'm so thrilled that I came across the WW Radio podcast a few months ago while browsing for Disney-related discussions. The podcast offers such a variety of topics, including top tens, reviews, vacations, and of course, my favorite, food talk. We just bought it right there, see? I only wish I found the podcast before my trip to Walt Disney World back in 2015 and 16. I feel included in a fan community, even though I live 3,000 miles from Florida. Deftones, that's the most important part of what we do. This fa The family cannot wait for what the future of WW Radio has in store. Listen immediately if you want to immerse yourself with all things Disney. Keep up the great work, Lou and family. And Mouse Ears 15 says, wonderful. I absolutely love the WW Radio show. I stumbled upon this by accident about a week ago, and I love Lou's knowledge and expertise at the parks and just enjoy listening to lengthy discussions about various topics within the Walt Disney World Resort. Thanks to all of you who have rated and reviewed the show. If you want to do it, again, just search for WW Radio in iTunes or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes. It'll give you instructions and a link on exactly how to do it. And finally, and most important, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time, for your attention, for your love, support, and the friendship that you extend me, both in person and just by being here. I don't think you realize how your presence and, the, and your attention and the fact that you're listening this far 
has given me an extraordinary life. And that is exactly how I would describe it. And that's what you need to do, right? You need to put the extra into ordinary, always. Don't just do what's expected or required or ordinary, right? Whatever you do in your job, or your home, or your relationships, always give and do more and exceed those expectations. Infuse all of your efforts with importance and value and be adventurous and be better and set an example for others. And most importantly, have a great, great week. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou, this is Beth Strickland uh, from Brooklyn, New York, but currently waddling out of the boathouse after quite possibly the best lunch of my life. Um, I had the, the cheeseburger with a pimented cheese on it. That was to die for the wedge salad, which is, like, huge. And because I'm gluten-free, they have a special uh, gluten-free warm brownie with ice cream and chocolate sauce and raspberry sauce all over it that is to die for. And you don't have to be gluten-free to get it. Just ask for it. Um, but Scott was my server, and he was amazing. And he's like, oh, yeah, who's in here all the time? So um, I don't know if he knew this, but his father came down here and was one of the people who worked on building Epcot, um, I think on the construction is. So he's got some stories. You should talk to him. But anyway, it's amazing, sunny weather down here. Loving it. Loving that I got out of New York before the snow. And just thank you for the recommendation for Boathouse because that that dessert alone changed my life. So have a wonderful day. Sorry, have a magical day. Take care. Bye. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flowertown, PA. I just listened to your latest podcast of your review of the Nomad Lounge, and boy, will I be going there. Sounds amazing, awesome. I'm definitely a big wine person, so um, all that wonderful red wine sounds so good. Um, Also, I want to remind everybody, at the end of the podcast, because this week, Sometimes, sometimes, as a little tidbit at the end, that man's playing guy. See it, but we did. What movie is that from? The Avengers. Iron Man says it, and um, I love that little those little tidbits that you put at the end sometimes. So if you are listening to podcast and you don't always follow it to the end, you should, because sometimes he adds a little something extra, which is really really fun. So. Thanks, Lou. Enjoy uh, listening to you, um, and I'll see you guys in the box tomorrow night. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hi, Lou. This is Mike and Laura from Minnesota. Just calling to just landed here at Bay Lake Tower for six days, then going to the Beach Club for six days and wrapping up our annual visit at the Fort Wilderness Campgrounds before heading back uh, to cold Minnesota. Uh, Disney magic has already set in. Figured I'd give you a call and let you know. Thank you for all you do. Bye. Hi, Lou. Um, my name is Jeffrey Johnson, and I'm calling you from good old Bixby, Oklahoma here. Um, and I'm actually on my way to my first day working with the Disney store at our local mall here. And I just 
wanted to give you a call and say thank you so much. Um, I started listening to your podcast, or not your podcast, your audio guides a couple weeks, or not a, a couple years back. Um, I started with the Adventureland one on iTunes, and since the first one I listened to, I have been hooked on them. I've listened to the audio guides countless times, and every time it just gives me such a feeling as though I'm actually at Disney, I'm actually in the park. And it brings that joy into my heart that only Disney, well, that Disney can bring out you. And just recently, I've been going through a really rough time in my life. Um, that <laughs> hasn't been much fun. And I started listening to your podcast because, you know, I knew that they were there, but I couldn't quite get into them. But I started listening to them about a week or so ago, and I have been listening to them non-stop lately. Be it your review on Pandora, the world of Avatar, or your top ten with little Timmy Foster. Uh, those ones are my favorite. You two are hysterical. And every time I listen to them, it just brings, it brings that Disney joy back into my heart. You got it. Just by listening to these podcasts, you have been able to make me smile and make me laugh at a time where I've been looking for so much to just help get me to smile once through the day. And every single time I listen to a podcast, it brings that smile to my face. It makes me want to go back to Disney. It, it, it makes me laugh. And I thank you so much for doing this. I listen to you guys while I'm in the car on the way to work, or I used to work at a golf course outside, so I could listen to them at work. And now that I'm actually on my way to my first day of being a Disney cast member, you have no idea how long I've wanted to say that. Um, I just, every time I listen to them, it gets me so excited, and you and little Timmy and all the other people that you have on there talk so highly of the cast members and how much joy they're able to bring to the vacation. And they are. They, I do everything I can to stop and talk to cast members when I'm at Disney or just the local store. Hello, Lou Mangello. It's Darlene Nagy from West Seneca, New York. And I am calling in to say I just got back from meeting my new nephew. He is so adorable, and my little goddaughter is getting so big. And we were discussing going to Walt Disney World in a few years with both of them. I am so excited. And I am calling in to say I am, as of tomorrow, 90 days out to my birthday trip to Walt Disney World. And you are 119 118 days tomorrow to going on that Alaska cruise. I hope everybody has such a fabulous time and they're getting their packing and buying their things very slowly so it's not a sticker shock at the end of what they are going to be planning. If you do it slowly now, like buying your hat and gloves and that if you're not in the cold weather area like this girl is, you can definitely make everything work out perfect. That's what we did. And then I have only 223 
days until I go down to Florida with our BFF family, the Sternbergs. Can't wait. Have a wonderful, magical week, and see you real soon. Love you all. Yeah. A good boy, Tom is kind. Tom holds wonders in his mind. Tom's an orphan, can't you see? He